Um, Hercule Poirot, or um, David Suchet, who is perhaps the, the most famous recent actor to have played. I'm not sure if he's been trumped by Kenneth Branagh or not at the moment. Um, but David Suchet, who also, as uh, many of you know, uh, narrated the NIV audio Bible, which you can listen to, he said this, when I read the Book of Romans in a hotel room in 1986, I was not a Christian. But when I had finished reading it, I felt compelled to become one. Um, that's quite a good um, advert for reading this part of the Bible, isn't it? And yet I think sometimes Christians feel a little bit daunted by Romans. I'm not looking for nods, but maybe um, that's something which uh, you felt from time to time. It's one of those parts of the Bible, isn't it, which sometimes feels like climbing a high mountain range. There are some wonderful heights and, uh, and impressive views and also some tricky paths to follow. Uh, last year, we read as far as the end of chapter 8, as Paul expounded on the, the good news of Jesus Christ, not just for God's people Israel, his Old Testament people, but for people from all the nations. And we ended in that great chapter with verses, that are the kind of verses you've probably got stuck on your fridge or on bookmarks in your Bible, saying things like, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so we arrive this morning as we restart the series at chapter 9, where Paul is continuing to expand that gospel and pick up on some of the questions that we might have if we've read the first half of Romans, some of the things which are coming to mind. Um, if God chooses, or in the word he uses here, elects some people and not others, well, isn't he being unfair? More than that, what about Israel? Isn't he being unfaithful to all the promises that he made back in the time of the Old Testament? If Israel are his people, how come so few of them seem to believe in the Messiah he has spent? Uh, so we're going to think about those questions, but if you want a summary of this passage as a kind of headline to start off, it would be something like this. It is God who is in charge, and his love and his mercy are simply enormous. It is God who is in charge, and his mercy and his love are enormous. Uh, so first of all, uh, in verses 1 to 13, the question that some people might ask is this. Is God unfaithful? Has he been unfaithful to what he has promised in all that Paul's been writing about in verses 1 to 8? And in particular, what about Israel? What about the promises God made to that particular people, that nation that he calls? Because it was obvious in the middle of the first century to Paul and to everyone else that many of them were not followers of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not just an academic question for Paul. I know he sometimes thought of as being, you know, kind of the, the great logical thinker of the New Testament. But he was never cold in his feelings, and you can sense his passion in our opening verses here, can't you? If you have a look at verses 1 to, one to 3, he writes of his sorrow and unceasing anguish at many people, many of his own people's rejection of Jesus, to the point where he'd willingly give his own salvation for theirs. He's not writing this in some kind of ivory tower. It's not an academic paper. This is his passion for people to know Jesus. And so in verses 4 and 5, he lists some of the privileges that God's people have had, their adoption, God's presence, the covenants he'd made with them, the laws of Moses, the worship of the temple, even Jesus' own family tree. And he's asking the question, well, why has it happened like this that so many of them at this point don't seem to know God through Jesus? And the first thing he says is in verse 6, it is not as though God's word has failed. Please don't get that idea. That is not what has happened. What we need to do is 
understand Israel properly, which is why he says, verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What does Paul mean by that? Uh, Well, first of all, that the promises of God are about spiritual faith, not about nationality or family tree. Uh, That's how Israel has always been formed. That's what Paul wants to say. He's going to come to Abraham in a moment. And secondly, this spiritual faith is always about God's sovereign choice. Um, He gives an example from the book of Genesis then for both of these things. Um, He wants us to to look carefully at what God has promised, uh, what it actually says, and see how it's being worked out in the coming of Jesus. So first of all, he points us to Abraham in verses 7 to 9. You may know the story of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12 onwards. Uh, And if you do, you'll know that he had two sons. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be numerous and blessed and that it would be through the line of Isaac that this happened. Abraham's other son was his physical descendant, of course, but only Isaac was his spiritual descendant, the child of the promise, if you like, the child of faith. And then secondly, in verses 10 to 13, we get a reminder that the fact that there will be a family of God's people from Abraham is all down to God's action, God's doing, his generosity. And Paul moves on to Isaac's own twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And he looks at what God has said in his promises. And he goes a bit deeper here. He tackles that thorny question. Well, how come some of Abraham's descendants will love God and be part of his people and others not? And his answer, uh, first of all, is that God's choice to bless Jacob, not Esau, was made before they were even born. We're in verses 10 to 12 here. Secondly, the choice had nothing to do with what the boys would be like. Verse 11, before the twins had done anything good or anything bad. And verse 12, it was not by works, but by him who calls. And so third, the only difference between Jacob and Esau uh, was that Jacob was called by God's purposes in election. Verse 11. Now we're used to the word election, aren't we? And it makes us think of councillors and and MPs. We're used to electing people for particular roles, aren't we? And we elect local councillors to make sure there are no potholes in our roads. And we elect MPs to make sure that our schools don't fall down. and Things like that, don't we? Many other things as well. Um, Elections are to to give people a task and a purpose. And Paul emphasises this uh, here when, when he's talking about Jacob and Esau. That is what, that's what election is all about. He quotes the prophet Malachi, verse 13. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And we kind of go, that sounds a bit strong. But it's a little bit like when Jesus says that, I mean, in order to follow me, you must hate your family. Um, he's not using hatred in the way that we often use it these days. He's not saying you must hate our, our parents or our siblings in that sense. But we should prefer Jesus over them. Um, Because it is that significant. He's saying, look, this is how it works. God chose to put Jacob above Esau, not because he's in any way superior, but that was God's gracious choice. Now, I know uh, that's quite easy to understand in one sense. I don't think what Paul is saying here is unclear, but it's not easy to accept, is it? And Christians have wrestled with this stuff for 2,000 years. We are not the first people to find some of these things hard. But here's the thing. Paul is not saying in any way that God is somehow arbitrary uh, in the way he picks people. He's not kind of going around going kind of, you, you, 
that, not you, you, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, or anything like that. Just that the reasons for God's election are nothing to do with how good or how moral or how deserving we may be. Believers are in no way superior to anybody else. In fact, without the idea of God's choosing, we are always in danger of making salvation about ourselves and missing it. So, we've got this quite clear but unsettling answer to the first part of Paul's question here in Romans 9. Is God unfaithful to his promises? No. Look at what those promises actually say and be grateful that they are based on faith and God's action, not on your own. But there is a second big question, and this comes in verses 14 to 29. And we've had, is God unfaithful? Well, maybe not, but is he unjust? Isn't this unfair? I think Paul knows what the next objection is going to be. He's talked about these things before, I would imagine, and he's ready for it. If God chooses some people to be included in his people and not others, how is that fair? It's a natural reaction, isn't it? And he picks up on it again straight away in verse 14. Uh, as he says, what, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? No, not at all. As the Revised Standard Version puts it, by no means. And Paul moves on at this point from Genesis to the next book of the Bible, Exodus, and the time of Moses and Pharaoh and God's rescue of his people from Egypt. And he reminds us of this aspect of God's character. It's there in his quote from Exodus 33. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It's not arbitrary. It can't be, because mercy is not required. It's something which is given when someone doesn't deserve it. It has to be totally free. John Stott, in his book on Romans, says this, Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy, because the basis on which God deals with sinners is not justice, but mercy. So that's the gospel. God is way more generous than any of us can imagine, uh, any of us can deserve, and all of our hope comes from our Father who chooses to be gracious and merciful towards us. Of course, the other side of the coin is what happens to Pharaoh, which we get in verses 17 to 18, and his hard heart. Why did Pharaoh keep Israel as slaves and refuse to set them free? Verse 17, quoting Exodus chapter 9, uh, God says this, I raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be displayed in all the earth. Just as God has mercy and compassion on those he chooses to, so, verse 18, he hardens those whom he chooses to harden. Now, we really need to go back and read the whole story of the Exodus, you know, from the beginning of Exodus up to about at least chapter to 10 or so. We're not going to do that this morning. But if you know a bit about that story, you may well remember some of this. As God sends the plagues one by one, and Pharaoh keeps on saying, no, I will not let your people go. But repeatedly in those chapters, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And also repeatedly in those chapters, we are told that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And he's told that his punishment is because he set himself against God and his people. Now, all of this is what Paul has been speaking about right through the book of Romans. And way back in chapter 1, he, he spoke of how God gives people over to their own ways. 
And that's what happens to Pharaoh here. Pharaoh decides to resist the Lord, and the Lord gives Pharaoh what Pharaoh chooses. We need to remember, Pharaoh was not some innocent good guy. He was a bad man. He enslaved the whole people. Um, At one point, if you remember, he tried to, to wipe them out by murdering all of their babies. That's what Pharaoh was like. He hardened his heart against God, and God hardened his heart. And somehow both of those statements are true. It's a thing that theologians sometimes call God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Both of those things are biblical. Um, Billy Graham, the famous 20th century evangelist, um, sometimes used to describe it like this. He would say, on the gates of heaven, there is a sign over the gates saying, come, whoever will believe. And when someone walks through that gate, when they glance back over their shoulder, they see a second sign which says, chosen before the foundation of the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his writing on Romans chapter 9, put it like this. One of the ways God produces hardening is to leave people to themselves. And Tim Keller, in his more recent book, says this. When God hardens someone's heart, he doesn't create the hardness of heart. He simply allows that person to go their own way. God hardens those he wants to harden, and all those he hardens want their hearts to be hardened. Now, these are quite sobering thoughts, aren't they? Um, Romans 9 gets us to think about difficult things. But if we want a gospel of grace, and we need a gospel of grace, rather than one based on religion or our own goodness, then we need to allow God to be God. There's always the temptation, isn't there, uh, to want to recreate God uh, in the way we would like him to be. And in Romans 9, Paul is helping us to see that God in his actions is neither unfaithful nor unfair but the one who can be trusted to always do what is good and right. He's in charge, and his mercy is enormous. Uh, We don't have time to look in detail at all the rest of the verses, but just in brief, in, in verses 19 to 23, Paul says, look, he's the potter, we're the clay. Who are we to think that we might know better than him? That's a part of our response to God. Maybe that the response for some of us to Romans 9 this morning would be to meditate a bit on verses 20 and 21, which humble us and exalt the Lord. Um, in verse 22, Paul emphasizes God's patience with all people, even those who are described as objects of his wrath. He bears with patience. He never gives anyone fully what they deserve. Everyone gets patience and time to repent. And in verse 23, while well, it's God's who prepares people in advance for glory. Back in verse 22, it's not God who prepares some people for destruction. Paul doesn't say that. And he doesn't say that for a reason. Uh, Again, as John Stott puts it, if anyone is lost, the blame is theirs. It is their choice. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. Um, I read a really helpful, I think it was helpful, illustration of this in one of the, the books I was looking at this week as I was preparing this. Um, Tim Keller says this, imagine five people are planning to rob a bank. Um, They are friends of mine. I find out about it and I plead with them not to do it. I beg them to stop. But finally, they push me out of the way and they make a start. As they go, I manage to tackle one of the men and wrestle him to the ground. The other four go ahead and they rob the bank. A guard is killed. They are captured. In the end, they're tried, convicted 
and sentenced. The one man who was not involved in the robbery goes free. Here's the question. Whose fault was it the other four men were punished? And the man who's walking around free, can he really say, I deserve to be the free man that I am? The only reason he's free is because I managed to hold on to him. In the same way, those who reject God cannot complain that God has not treated them rightly. Um, those who experience his mercy have no one to praise but the Lord himself and no deserving of that mercy in any way. Um, that's the gospel. We're all set on robbing the bank. Uh, that's what Paul is saying to us in Romans. So you may remember in chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is innocent, and yet, despite our choices, he is building a people for himself. He sends his son to rescue us from ourselves. And in the final verses of our section, Paul quotes from the Old Testament prophets Hosea and Isaiah to reinforce that point, that in sending those to rescue those he has chosen and called, God is being faithful to the plans he has had all along. God is in charge. His love and mercy are huge. And this is the mercy that David Suchet spoke of finding when he read the book of Romans for the first time. It's the mercy that Paul longs for all his people to know for themselves. Um, how do we respond to this? I think, as I said before, one of the ways is by humbling ourselves. It's a reminder that the gospel is about Jesus and not about you or me. And yet he does it for us. Uh, one of the ways in a few moments is uh, to meet him in bread and wine. And as we take those tokens of his salvation, give thanks for what he has done. And through the week, as we go through another week as his people, to remember to praise him for his mercy and his grace, which is greater than we can imagine.